Welcome to the Brand Forum Podcast. I'm your host, John Fanning, and today we're talking to Jack Bobo. Jack is eminently qualified to talk to us about food policy, sustainability, and obesity, some of the major issues affecting us at the moment. He has three postgraduate degrees in the environment, psychology, and technology. For 16 years, he worked in the U.S. Department of Food as a senior advisor, and he's currently a director of a food policy think tank. He's given over 500 speeches in over 50 countries, cited by Scientific American as one of the 100 most influential people in the food business. Jack has recently published a best-selling book, Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices. There's two major issues facing the world today where the agriculture industry is central, sustainability and obesity. Now, although there's a connection between the two, I'd like to take sustainability first on a kind of global level. And you've written quite eloquently on why we need to produce more food in the immediate future, at least until 2050. And could you explain why the next 25 years, therefore, are going to be absolutely critical for the agriculture industry? So, uh, today, we, we just crossed the 8 billion mark for the number of people on the planet. And so producing enough food for 8 billion people is a tremendous challenge. We have 800 million people who are going to bed hungry. So we're not quite there yet in terms of feeding the people we have. But we also know we're going to go to 9.5, maybe even 10 billion people by 2050. That means we're going to add another 1.5 to 2 billion people to the planet. But those people are actually, their incomes are rising. And so as those incomes rise, they're going to be able to have access to more animal protein and other things. And so demand for food will rise even faster than population. As a result, the Food and Agriculture Organization has estimated that we'll need between 50 and 60 percent more food to feed the world by 2050. And that's a tremendous challenge. And how, therefore, do you reconcile the fact that you know, if agriculture is one of the biggest threats to the environment, but you calculate that for every euro or dollar invested in, in agriculture, it produces a 1.4 euro return? Yeah, so there's this tremendous opportunity. I mean, many people, when we think about the problems of agriculture, we're looking at 40% of the land is devoted to agriculture, 70% of freshwater goes to agriculture. Um, Almost a third of all greenhouse gas emissions are caused by agriculture. But the problems of agriculture are because of the demand on it. We, we need so much and we, we're still not meeting, meeting the needs we have. But if we were to go back to 1960 and we were to look at the amount of food that was being produced, if we only had to produce that same amount of food today, things would be wildly better. And, you know, I, I like to give us some examples uh, from the United States. I'm sure the numbers are very similar uh, over there, that to produce a bushel of corn, a farmer in America today produces 35% fewer greenhouse gas emissions. There's 40% less uh, land needed to produce that. There's 50% less water and there's 60% less erosion to produce that food. And that's true of cotton and soybeans and canola and all sorts of things. So things are not just better. They're actually really wildly better. The problem is that we need so much more food that instead of just sort of banking all of those improvements, um, we're still struggling to, to keep up. Things are not bad and getting worse. They're good and getting better, just not fast enough. And again, to put that into perspective, if we were using 1960s technology to feed the world today, we would need 1 billion 
additional hectares of land to produce that food, well, that's more than a quarter of all the forests that are on the planet. And so in some ways, that quarter of the uh, forest only exists because of improvements in agricultural production and management practices and genetics of animals and crops and other things. And so they've protected a billion hectares, even though they have replaced uh, some of the forest because agriculture has expanded to some extent. And so there's that tension of, you know, how do we produce more efficiently and effectively um, as population grows? But we are already doing that. So really, the, the, the gap is in, in how this is communicated, or maybe it's not been communicated at all, how efficient the agricultural industry is. Yeah, well, according to the World Resources Institute, about two-thirds of the improvement we need in our food system to get to a sustainable food system by 2050 will occur based on business as usual. In other words, the consistent, regular improvements in our food system that farmers and ranchers are doing absolutely every single day will get us two-thirds of where we need to be. That's amazing. What we really need to do is we need conservation organizations, we need governments, we need others to help us close that gap. So instead of thinking of farming as being bad and needs to be better, we need to think about, well, what could we be doing in order to do even better? So we need to get to our 2070 goals by 2050. And if we do, we will be in good shape. And do you see the responsibility for that resting on governments and NGOs or on the agricultural industry itself? Well, I see it as a partnership. So, yeah. you know, again, farmers and ranchers are going to do two thirds of the work. So we got to give them a lot of credit. Um, but they need additional tools. They need additional policies that uh, provide incentives. Uh, and, you know, I'll just give you one example that, you know, uh, there's a, a lot of interest in cover crops today, planting crops to keep a little bit of the um, so nutrients on the, the ground or reduce soil erosion or other things. And, and that may be a cost to the farmer. Well, what we need to do is we need to invest in the research to find out, you know, does that reduce yields by 3% or 2% or um, reduced income by 2 or 3% or does it have a return on the investment? You know, we won't know until we do the research. But if we're if we're sure that it's actually going to be better for the land, it's going to enhance soil carbon, uh, it's going to you know, increase biodiversity of the soil, well, then maybe we need to provide an incentive for those farmers to adopt that practice. And then once we have the data, we'll know, well, maybe we can reduce that incentive because it turns out it was a return on the investment mm -hmm. and they don't really need the incentive anymore. So we can accelerate adoption and uptake. The research and the investment, should that come from individual countries or for their own agricultural industries, or should it be a global initiative? Well, I think all countries should be investing in agriculture. And historically, that was the case. Unfortunately, a lot of countries have reduced investment in agriculture over the last 30 or 40 years. You know, it's, it's really unfortunate. And the disparity between agricultural investment and investments in medical research are pretty stark. Yeah. In the United States, we invest about a billion dollars in ag R&D compared to a hundred billion dollars in medical R&D. And yet, uh, you know, there, there is this uh, terrific return if we were investing more in ag. And you could presumably make the argument that if you, if you invested more in ag, you wouldn't need to invest more in uh, preventative kind of uh, medical diseases and uh, and solutions. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the next part of our conversation. 
just taking the global and the local, which I think is a key part of your argument, can you explain why we need to be conscious of the difference between the two? Yeah, well, so sustainability is very important. We need to ensure that the land we have can be used, you know, for generations to come. And so we need to to have a light footprint in terms of, um, you know, what we do to the land. But there's some land that can be more intensively farmed and some land we need to be more careful about it because it's next to a stream, it's next to a forest, it has wildlife impacts. And so when I think about sustainability, I think about it in terms of what I call local sustainability and global sustainability. For most consumers, I think they think in terms of local sustainability. If you use less water, less fertilizer, less insecticide, you're probably gonna have a lighter impact on the land. And that, that's true. And so it's, has a, it's better for that piece of land you're farming. But if you use fewer inputs, you will get fewer outputs. You'll produce less food. And that means somebody somewhere else has to pick up the difference. And so the impacts are global. So the benefits are local, but the impacts are global. With that global sustainability, it's more intensively farmed. The impacts are felt locally because you have more erosion or runoff or things. Um, But the benefits are global because you need less land someplace else. And for me, it's really just a continuum from local sustainability to global sustainability. They're both critical, but there are trade-offs between the two. Mm. And we really need consumers and farmers and everybody to understand those trade-offs so that we can guide you know, some land to being more intensively farmed and some land uh, to be more locally uh, sustainable farming. And if we do, our food system will actually be better than if we did one or the other alone. From what you know, Jack, about the, the Irish agricultural industry and its particular importance to the, Irish, to the overall Irish economy compared, let's say, to some other countries. Where do you think we stand on the global and local argument and what should we be doing? Well, so a lot of the farming in uh, Ireland is, is probably closer to what I would call local because you're using a lot of grass-fed production and, and that fits the economy of Ireland. You know, you don't, you don't have land to have, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres, you know, under... Uh, producing corn to to feed to those cows, you know, you have this grassland and it's there and and you're making good use of it. And, you know, and and that's great. That's really important. And you're producing high quality products and there's a market for it. And so I think that when you look at the emissions, uh, you know, the amount of food produced uh, for those emissions, Ireland is a, a pretty low emission producer. And, you know, that's a good thing. We need more places that produce food with low emissions. And because it's exporting a lot of its product to other parts of the world, they're benefiting from that low emission production that's occurring in Ireland. But within Ireland, uh, an awful lot of media coverage would suggest that we're a high emission country and that we're getting higher. Well, again, you know, there the more you produce, the more the emissions there will be. So there, there's a difference between um, a sector producing a lot of emissions and a, producing a lot of emissions per unit production. So, you know, if we were to look at emissions in many parts of the developing world, you know, in Latin America, they're producing much less efficiently um, than what's happening in Ireland. And so the cost of producing in those locations would be much higher. And so I think that, you know, when they look at the emissions, it's not that they're saying, you know, Ireland is a 
um, high unit production uh, emitter, they're saying that you know just agriculture is a big piece of your emission pie. And that can be true, but if the alternative is even worse, then you know we need to keep that in mind. And you know the, the example I would give is that you know if Ireland were to reduce its production of beef by 10 or 15 percent, well, as long as demand in the rest of Europe remains the same, somebody else has to pick up that slack. And if that came from the United States or Australia, maybe there wouldn't be much of a difference. But if it came from a place that's um, having lots of deforestation, it could be dramatically worse. Mm. And so, you know, it's a global economy. And so if, if demand doesn't change, then, you know, that could lead to higher global emissions at the same time that it's reducing Irish emissions. Yeah, a lot of, I mean, reading your written material and listening to your podcasts and interviews and so on and so forth, one conclusion keeps, or one point keeps coming out to me is that we're communicating what we do very badly. We're not actually making it clear to people. And when I say people, I'm probably talking about opinion leaders in society, the exact results of what we do and the fact that, you know, on the whole, it's a good result for the world if Irish agriculture stays as it is. Why do you think it's so difficult to get these arguments across? Well, one is, you know, I, I wouldn't say that Irish agriculture is going to stay like it is. It will be wildly better 30 years from now than it is today. So, you know, we, we need to recognize. Yeah, that's in terms of how, how yeah. scientifically increased, you know, it is in terms right. of what it produces. But we would also be thinking of increased production per se. Yeah. So I think that, you know, it, it's challenging because, you know, how do how does Europe you know, tackle its emissions. You know, if it just says we're a low emission uh, producer, we don't have to change. Well, you know, that that is a problem, you know, because overall, you know, our, uh, European emissions and, you know, including Ireland, you know, do need to come down. But I think that, you know, there needs to be a plan for how they do that. And, you know, part of that means, you know, we need to have carbon adjustments that make it clear that, you know, if we're going to be importing from one part of the world, then, you know, that counts against us. So importing beef from someplace that has high emissions is just a worse outcome than producing things locally. And, and you see this challenge with the farm to fork strategy. Uh, you know, it intends to reduce uh, fertilizer use, insecticide use, and move to about 25% organic by 2030. And the Joint Research Committee, uh, the JRC from Europe, has estimated that will lead to a 15% reduction in food production in all of Europe. So overall, Europe will reduce its uh, food production by 15%. And I don't think food demand in Europe is going to be going down by 15% by 2030. Right. So, you know, the country that sends the most food to Europe is Brazil. And so Europe is already exporting its environmental footprint to arguably the most biodiverse country on the planet. And so, you know, it, it's about choices and consequences. And so the consequence of Europe's, Europe's current approach is, you know, to be a driver of deforestation in many ways. Where do you think Origin Green fits into this argument from an Irish perspective? Well, 
you know, for me, it fits in, you know, even from a global perspective, because I think it's quite unique in having a, a government led or promoted initiative that encourages all of its companies to adopt sustainable practices. So, you know, from a leadership perspective, I think that really sets Ireland apart. Uh, and it, I think it also makes good business sense because it creates a, a brand that others can uh, recognize globally as, you know, if they can choose products from Ireland, then they know they're getting uh, products that are, are more sustainably produced. And more and more consumers are aware of the impact and they want their uh food choices to be a reflection of their values. And if they care about sustainability, then they care about uh, companies and brands um, that promote sustainability. Let's turn now to obesity. Uh, Your recent book, Why Smart People Make Bad Food Choices, makes the case that obesity was not a problem 50 years ago when people knew very little about diet and nutrition. And now that they know everything about diet and nutrition, it's a huge problem. This is an extraordinary paradox. Uh, that has arisen in recent years. How do you explain that? Well, that's really what led me to uh, to write the book in the first place. Yeah. You know, I you know I I hear a, a lot about obesity, and you know, it really got me wondering. Well, you know, why is it such a problem today? Because you know, not only do most consumers know a lot about health and nutrition, at least certainly more than people did in 1960. But many food products, if not all food products, have nutrition panels on the back. So if they don't know the answer, then they can look at look for it. Uh, restaurants often have menu labels where they tell you the calorie content of the food before you purchase it. And so all of these things you would think would be leading us to, uh, you know, be in better shape. And yet, you know, just the opposite has happened. And so one of the things I did was, you know, as I look back, you know, you you can see a lot of changes that happen, not just in the food we eat, but in how we eat. And I like to give one example. Uh, back in the 1960s, there was this guy named David Wallerstein, and and he was responsible for trying to figure out how to get people to eat more food and snacks in the uh, movie theater business. And so he tried everything to get people to eat more. And finally, he hit on this idea, well, what if I gave them a bigger bag of popcorn or offered them a bigger bag? And he did. And of course, sales of popcorn took off, sales of soda took off. And, you know, it sort of dramatically changed his business. Well, the same guy went on to work for McDonald's, a company you may have heard of. Mm-hmm. And uh, he eventually convinced Ray Kroc, the founder of uh, the McDonald's Foundation or Corporation, to uh, adopt a larger size of French fries. And of course, the rest is history. And so there was this dramatic change in you know how we we consume food. Uh, the introduction of things like low fat products were intended to encourage people to eat you know less fat, which you know was a, a good recommendation. The problem is our brains got involved, and our brains thought, well, if one low fat cookie is good for me, an entire box, well, that's got to be great, right? And so we ended up you know things that we were doing to try to make us healthier often backfired on us. You know, bigger sizes is great value, but great value, you know, eating twice the food you need turns out not to be such a great thing after all. Yeah, one of the, the concepts that you, you come up with in the book is the idea of the foodscape. And you make the point, I think, very accurately that our foodscape has changed significantly over the last 20 years. Uh, would you 
please elaborate on Foodscape a little bit. Yeah, well, Foodscape is just a, maybe a complicated way of saying our food environment. And you know, our food environment is not just you know the restaurant and the dining room where we eat, but it's all of the things that influence those decisions. You know, how far do you have to walk to go to a grocery store? How many choices do you have in a grocery store? Um, what What's the menu like at the restaurant? How does that influence us? How does the number of people sitting around us? What about the music that's playing, the lighting of the background? All sorts of things influence what we're doing. Um, some of the things that have a, really changed, though, a, a lot of that is one serving size or portion sizes in restaurants. Um, snacking, you know, we all do a lot more snacking than, than we used to. And many of us are snacking because we're, we're bored or depressed or other things rather than because we're hungry. You know, sometimes you sort of walk into the kitchen and you're looking around and you're not really sure why. And then you end up, you know, picking up something and, and eating it. And so a lot has changed uh, about how we, we eat and, you know, what our food environment is like. You know, in a, a typical restaurant in the United States, uh, a dinner plate, you know, is now 12 or 13 inches. In 1960, a dinner plate was seven to nine inches. Yeah, that's incredible. You know, if you yeah. have a plate, yeah, yeah, I mean, if you can fit 50% more food on a plate, people will put more food on the plate. And if you put food in front of people, they will eat it because that, that's just our behavior. Yeah, I mean, there was a time when you went into a, what we would call a petrol station and you bought petrol for your car. Now you can go into a petrol station and you have a three-course meal. Uh, so the opportunities <laughs> to eat are much greater. And that presumably is one of the reasons for the obesity problem. Yeah, it definitely. So all of these little things are adding up. And so, you know, we're eating, you know, 20 more calories here, 50 more calories there. And if you eat, you know, 10 or 20% more calories every single day of your life, you know, you're going to gain weight. And, you know, it's not because of the, the Oreo or it's not because of the Dorito. You know, it's, it's everything. Yeah. And so it's, it's very hard to address it from a policy perspective because any food as part of a healthy and nutritious diet is just fine. But, you know, all of these foods together, you know, are, are toxic. But it's not necessarily the food itself. It's the increased opportunity to consume that food. I mean, reading the chapters in that area from the book, it seems to me that behavioral economics or the lessons from behavioral economics are, are going to be critical as a solution. And can you think of any examples of where the lessons of these kind of nudge units that some governments have, where that's solved the problem or been a partial solution to the problem? Well, I'm not sure. Definitely nobody solved it. And, you know, I'm not even sure if there's a partial solution. But I think that there are plenty of examples of how uh, nudging has been shown to be, you know, effective in the field. And you know, one chapter of my book is devoted to the work that uh, Google has done. And yes, you, don't you said, think of yeah. Google as a, a yeah. food, a food or a nutrition company, but but they're feeding two hundred thousand people every single day, and you know that's one, two, or three meals, and they're giving them some of the best food in the world because they have these amazing chefs and restaurants uh, in their buildings. And what they found is that when they started uh, making this free food available people started gaining weight <laughs> and it's, it's not hard to imagine why. <laughs> and so uh, they brought in uh, somebody to, to help them think about that. And so they started working with the, uh, the Yale Center for Consumer Insights to try and figure out well, what could we do differently. 
And so they started applying behavioral science. They thought about, well, you know, we've got this buffet line. You know, what if we put the vegetables first? How does that influence people? Um, we're giving away free soda. What, you know, we don't want to take it away because people will complain. So they took that soda, they put it in the, a lower refrigerator, and they put it behind frosted glass, whereas the flavored waters and things like that were up above and easily visible. They moved the snack stations further away from the coffee because they found while your cup is brewing, if there's a donut right next to it, you eat it. But if you have to walk 20 feet, you're less likely to do it. And so they used all of these little behavioral nudges to encourage people to eat, you know, just a little bit healthier every single time they were making a food choice. And one of the things that they also did that I thought was interesting is they they funded a a 72-hour course with the Culinary Institute of America to work on how to make uh, vegetables amazing. Because again, the recognition is, you know, if people love something, they're going to eat more of it. And, you know, in many restaurants, you know, you, you go through, you know, washing dishes to, you know, doing all of the different steps. And the last step is, you know, learning to cook the meat. You know, that's the pentacle of the, um, you know, chef experience. Instead of vegetables, which, you know, they might be steamed, they, you know, much less attention has historically been, been paid to them. And if we can do a better job of making the vegetables the center of the plate, then, you know, it's not about eliminating, you know, meat from the diet. It's about right-sizing the portions of the food on our plate. And uh, one of the examples I give is that, um, you know, many of us have been on an airplane where they give you the little six-ounce can of soda, and, you know, you probably drank it. And, you know, how many of us have said, wow, I wish I had six more of those. <laughs> you know, what most of us feel like is when you finish that tiny can, it just seems like it's so much better than the average can of soda you drink. And that's because by the time you finish drinking it, you still enjoy it because you haven't overconsumed that product. And so for me, when I think about behavioral interventions, it is not about taking away the joy of food. It's about reintroducing the joy of food so that we maximize the enjoyment of the experience as opposed to maximizing the volume of the contents. Be a good idea if we could get parents to adopt the same lessons as Google staff. Um, that must be a challenge for some kind of government organization. What? Point that there's a growing vegan movement around the world, which some people see as a threat to the agricultural industry, traditional agricultural industry. Do you think the problem would be solved if the entire world went vegan? Well, uh, you know, there are still vegans who are overweight, so obesity, you know, uh, might be reduced, but you know, it's hard to say. Uh, but there are a lot more people who say they're vegan or vegetarian than who are in practice. <laughs> and, you know, what's interesting is, you know, there, there was a study that uh, asked uh, millennials, you know, how they think about plant-based foods. And, you know, it, what they found is that millennials have a more support for plant-based foods than any other generation group. So, you know, not surprising at all. But what they also found is that millennials consume meat at the highest rate of any generation. <laughs> and so, you know, we, we hear one statistic and then, you know, we end up worrying about it, but, you know, we haven't really put it all into context. Um, but, you know, the, the reality is if, if we were to consume less meat, it would generally have a, a lower environmental footprint and, you know, that would have benefits. 
But it wouldn't even mean that we should produce less meat or dairy in Ireland because there are many people who are undernourished in the world. And so that would create an opportunity to get, you know, uh, nutritious food to other parts of the world. You know, there are a lot of people, a lot of places where there's stunting of children because they don't get enough uh, protein. There's cognitive development declines because of a lack of proper nutrition. And so, as I said, 800 million people need better nutrition. And so, you know, there's plenty of room for for all of us to be eating healthier, probably a little bit less of everything. Um, but that doesn't mean that demand for those products goes away. There are other places where people really need it. And again, I ask you the question, and this time in relation to both obesity and sustainability, can you think of examples of campaigns in any country in the world where behavior has changed for the better because of a specific campaign in terms of eating better? Well, um, it's hard with food, but I'll, I'll give you a, a really great example of where a, a state in the United States has done a public service campaign that yep. really worked. Uh, you know, I don't know if people in Ireland have heard of the phrase, don't mess with Texas. Is that something that you guys are, are familiar with, sort of that point of pride? I wouldn't be familiar with it, but I've heard of it, yes. Okay. Well, you, what you probably don't know is that's an anti-littering campaign from the state of Texas um, decades ago. And what happened is the state of Texas was trying to convince, you know, young men to stop throwing stuff out the windows of their cars uh, on the highway. And they tried all sorts of things, you know, increasing the cost of the fines and things like that. And they couldn't change the behavior. But then they thought, well, you know, let's attack this as a point of pride. And they came up with the slogan, don't mess with Texas. And very quickly, people started changing the behavior and becoming sort of aggressively, you know, um, pro uh, Mm -hmm. protecting the environment and culture of. And so as we're thinking about, you know, how do we do it? We need to work with human psychology. You know, we, you know, if you try to force people to do something, you create reactants, and often they will do exactly the opposite. Google is another great example. They tried to go with a meatless Monday, and you know, if, if people are giving you Michelin star quality food, you know, you really shouldn't complain if they want to give you a four cheese ravioli for for lunch instead of uh, some meat. But you ended up with people out in the parking lot with their barbecues cooking up steaks (laughs) to stick it to Google. And, you know, what they could have done is they could have just, you know, started rotating more um, vegetarian dishes that were just really great food. You know, there are lots of good Indian dishes that they could have served that just happened to not have any meat. Nobody would have known that they were doing it. And everybody would have just, you know, gotten that benefit without forcing people to confront that uh, that policy. That's a brilliant example, Jack. And that's probably a very good place to end because it's so clear and gives us clues as to where we should be going. Thank you very much, Jack Bobo. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to the Board Beer Brand Forum podcast. You can find out more about the show and the Brand Forum on the Board Beer website. Don't forget to subscribe or follow wherever you're listening now and you won't miss any of the upcoming episodes. See you next time.